19 is the shortest chapter in the entire book of Revelation, and it reminds us specifically of how deliverance was made possible and offered to all, that the wrath that's coming is not inevitable for those on whom it is poured. They are choosing their own choice of of their destiny, their uh, final wrath that they're going to experience. Deliverance was made for them, but they are choosing to go against it. So first, let's look at deliverance from the beast. Deliverance from the beast. This is verses 1 and 2. John writes, then I saw another sign. The first sign that he saw was in chapter 12. It was the woman who is Israel. The second sign that he saw was the dragon in chapter 12, which is the devil. And here is a third sign. It's great and marvelous. Great is just the Greek word megas. It's a mega sign, and it's marvelous. That word marvelous means beyond human comprehension, something that we cannot on our own grasp. So even as we enter into these judgments, we are clearly saying we can't figure these things out on our own. We need God's understanding, his help, his illumination of our hearts. It's great and marvelous. Those two words put together, great and marvelous, they are only seen in the New Testament two times. Great and marvelous put together. Once is here, and then once is in verse 3, when it says great and marvelous are your works. So this is something that's serious about who God is. Great and marvelous is the sign, great and marvelous are the works of God. And what are these signs? What is this sign, this other sign that John sees, this great and marvelous sign? And it's clear here in verse 1. It's seven angels who have the seven plagues holding these seven plagues. The seven angels are holding them. Seven plagues. The word plague isn't like the word for plague that we would think of in the Old Testament. It's not a disease. Uh, one could translate this word uh, beatings, uh, wounds, scourgings, this is active punishment. And the seven angels are holding, uh, they're going to be holding seven bowls of active punishment on the world. And they are, there's seven um, bowl judgments that we're going to see in chapter 16. Sores, oceans of blood, fresh waters becoming blood, scorching heat from the sun, darkness and unbearable pain, drying up of the Euphrates River, and global environmental destruction and hail. Those are the last of the seven bowls. Those are the seven bowls, and those are the last of the series of judgments that God is going to pour out. And he says that. These are the seven angels who have the seven plagues, which are the last, implying that what has come before was an aspect of God's judgment that's been poured out, and now here's the finality of God's judgment. This is the finality of God's judgment. So the bowls are the end, What happened before is the trumpets. What happened before is the seals. The seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are all an expression of God's judgment on the earth. This also helps us, by the way, to to know interpretively. There are some people, well-intentioned, we would love them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They would say that the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bulls are all the same judgments. And instead of seeing them consecutive this way, as in 21 different types of judgment, They're just seven judgments, just seen from different perspectives. I totally know why they get that. I think you probably can too, because there's some overlap on the way that the judgments look and the way that they act and the way that they seem. But it's not seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls all put together, and it's just seven judgments seen from different angles. I think that this verse, along with other things in the book of Revelation, would tell us that it's not just seven judgments. It's seven, then seven, then seven, because it says these are the last. So the judgments that have happened consecutively, chronologically, we're coming to the end of the judgments. So I think it's been 21 that's going to end here. 
in the last. And remember, we said that they're telescopic in nature. So instead of being on top of each other, that there's just seven just from different angles, and really instead of being on a linear plane of seven, 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 they're telescopic. Remember, it's like a telescope that you, uh, you, you can fold it up and make it really small, and then you can open it up, and you have different segments inside of it. The seals, when you break that seventh seal, those are the trumpet judgments. And when you break, when you blow that last trumpet, those are the seven bowls. So they're all inside of each other. So really, when you break that first seal, you have the last bowl in mind. They're all together. But they are chronological and consecutive in their unfolding. The wrath of the Lamb had begun back in chapter 6 with the seal judgments expressed in the trumpet judgments and now finally concluding with the bowl judgments. And so in these judgments, the wrath of God is finally finished. Now, before anybody can cry foul, before anybody can say, God, you are unjust to bring wrath. Why are you so angry? Why are you so wrathful? We must remember that these judgments, these series of bold judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth, when should they have first occurred? Think with me. When should they have first occurred? If God is going to be instantaneously judgmental of the world, then these judgments should have been poured out in Genesis 3. They should have been poured out when Eve and Adam fell, when they ate the fruit and disobeyed God. God should have let all of these judgments be poured out instantly. Destroying Adam and Eve, destroying the devil. But God has been patient. He's even been patient in this period of great tribulation. He's not ending it right then. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's giving the end times a period of seven years, not just one year, not seven months, it's seven years. Why? Because 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that God is not patient the way that we regard patience. He's not slow the way that we regard slowness. He's not human the way that we would think he would act. He's waiting and he's pleading and he's desiring for people to repent. So he's not slow. He's waiting for people to repent. He's pleading with them to repent. And so here, finally, time is going to wear out. And God's wrath will be finished in its fullness at the end of these bold judgments. And then Christ will come back and the battle of Armageddon will happen. And that's in chapter 19. John then writes in verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass. We already saw this sea in chapter 4, verse 6. We knew that it was a, an expression of the holiness of God. It's a, it's a sea that John is trying to de describe what he sees in the throne room of heaven. He sees God on his throne. He sees uh, even that's hard to describe because God's spirit, so he doesn't have a body. He's not sitting on the throne. But there's some throne in heaven with some uh, presence of the glory of God and the holiness of God that's emanating forth. And as it emanates forth, all John can describe is it looks like a sea of glass. But back in chapter 4, verse 6, do you remember what it was mixed with? In chapter 4, verse 6, it was a sea of glass that had an emerald hue to it. We talked about how that emerald hue might just mean uh, a representation of the mercy of God, of the kindness of God. Remember, it was a rainbow around, remembering God's promise to Noah, uh, an offer of grace, a, a gift of grace. Here, this sea of glass is not emerald in color. Instead, it's mixed with fire mixed with fire. That's divine judgment that emanates from divine holiness. That's a judgment inside of holiness. 
those who had been victorious over the beast, that's the Antichrist, the, the ones who have been victorious over the beast are those who were killed. The martyrs who were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ would not bow, would not worship the beast, would not take his mark, would not obey him. They were killed. And in their being slaughtered, they defeat the beast. They overcome. They're victorious over the beast, over his image, over his number, over his, uh, the number of his name. They're standing on the sea of glass. You and I couldn't stand on the sea of glass. We would be obliterated because of our sin, but they have finally entered into perfection, into holiness in heaven. And so they stand on the sea of glass and they're holding harps of God. Harps are a sign of joy and uh, jubilation and celebration. They are so excited to finally be done with the cares of this world and the destructive influence of the Antichrist and of the persecution that they experienced and the martyrdom that they went through. God has wiped away their tears, and they are rejoicing. They're rejoicing. One commentator says it this way. The sea is a limpid and untroubled sea that makes it look like, look like a crystal. But here, the intermingling of fire suggests the punitive providence to materialize shortly as the seven angels pour out the terrible contents of the bowls. The sea is a mighty reservoir of just judgments about to become realities. The overcomers have forded that new Red Sea, which will shortly engulf their foes. Notice that they are victorious through their dying. They were delivered through their death. That's why I say the very first aspect of deliverance is seen by these overcomers who are victorious even though they were slaughtered. I wonder how that might impact our prayer lives when we think about those in our lives who are struggling and who are suffering. Think about those that we've prayed for just even recently that God would heal. And God answers, yes, but I will heal in a different way than you want. I will deliver, but in a different way than you want. We tend to want relief. God wants reformation. And so he works in our lives and he brings about very different than we would ever expect. He brings about deliverance. I'm sure that these overcomers were praying while they were on earth, God, please protect us from the Antichrist. Please keep us safe. Please keep us away. Please keep us hidden. And God says, I will protect you from the Antichrist by making sure that you never bow to him, by giving you the strength, the courage, the faith, and the perseverance to never bow, and by allowing him to kill you so that you can be with me where he can never touch you ever again. That was God's answer to their prayer. And they rejoice. No one's saying, God, why'd you answer it that way? They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing. And their deliverance, as they stand before God with these harps, and they're singing, saying, Antichrist is back there on earth. We're safe. We've been delivered. Their personal deliverance reminds them of two other aspects of deliverance, two other scenes of deliverance. One is deliverance from Egypt, and one is deliverance from the wrath of God. And those are the next two points in our sermon this morning. So first we see deliverance from the beast. These overcomers have been delivered victorious. And that deliverance reminds them of other deliverances. Number two, deliverance from Egypt. Deliverance from Egypt. They sing, verse 3, the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, this song is very interesting. It, it puzzles a lot of people because the words don't exactly match any song that Moses sang or the song of the Lamb that was sung in Revelation chapter 5. They don't match those words. The themes are identical, and we're going to actually look at the themes. The themes are the same, and it's deliverance, it's God's justice, it's God's 
uh, wrath against sin and God delivering his people. But we don't have a word-for-word quotation of those specific songs, which in my mind tells us that we're continually learning in heaven, even as we study the word of God. We're taking those themes, we're learning, we're making new songs, and they're both rejoicing at deliverance. So let's look at the first one, the song of Moses. There are two, quote-unquote, songs of Moses in the Bible, Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. So let's turn to Exodus 15. This is right after the people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea. And I want to read this song in its entirety because you'll see what the themes are and why those victorious saints in heaven, the overcomers, why they are probably remembering this song. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And they said, I will sing to the Lord. Listen to what God has done and who he is. Who he is and what he has done as expressed in this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to overtake, I'm going to divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. But who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they trembled. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, gripped them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. That's the song of Moses in Exodus 15. And you can see different themes. God's judgment against his enemies. God's deliverance of his people through that judgment. They're allowed to be delivered through the judgment. Who is like God? He's mighty. He's holy. He's awesome. So none of the judgments that God is bringing on his enemies are unholy or unjust. Those themes are seen in the song that's sung in Revelation 15. Turn just really quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the other song of Moses that the overcomers might be thinking of when they sing 
in chapter 15. This, was, this one is much longer, so we can't read the whole thing. But as you turn there, Deuteronomy 32, it's, it's a kind of retelling of Exodus 15 and the song in Exodus 15 with a couple nuanced differences. But the entirety of the Exodus reminds us of the lengths that God will go to save his people. Even in the plagues that are going to be seen, those seven bowls, five of those seven bowls recall the plagues that were in Egypt. So I think that the, the overcomers that are in heaven, that are standing before God, they're hearing these things, they're seeing these things, and they're remembering God's deliverance of his people in Egypt. So Exodus 15 is really more than praise for God's victory in uh, Egypt, over Egypt. It's praise for God's victory over evil as a whole. And that's why believers are praising and singing this kind of a song in Revelation 15. Because God, though evil is reigning, God will ultimately triumph. It's praise for God's victory over evil. Now in Deuteronomy 32, let's read just a couple verses here. Uh, starting in verse 1. This is at the end of Moses' life. He's about to die. And he is charging Israel, saying, you're going into the promised land and you are going to struggle, and you have already been unfaithful, and I know you're going to be unfaithful again, and if you are, remember that if you choose to deny God, you choose judgment. It's your choice, but you're choosing it if you choose to disobey. So verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the shower on the herb. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His works are perfect because all of his ways are just. So even in judgment, all of his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. So his justice in acting in judgment is because of them acting corruptly. They're not his children because of their defect, but they're a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus say, do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has brought you? He has made you and established you. So you are his created being, and you're spurning him. Drop down to verse 11. This is what God did in delivering you. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. This is what God did in Egypt. This is what God did to deliver his people. He delivered them because of his grace towards them. Drop down to verse 23. Because they have denied him and spurned him, I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plagues and bitter destruction and the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Remember, almost all of those were seen in the seal judgments. Outside the sword will bereave, and inside terror, both young man and virgin, the nursling with the man of gray hair. So we see judgment in this song, which we're going to see in the song in Revelation 15. We see judgment. Turn to verse 35. Vengeance is mine, and retribution is mine. In due time, their foot will slip. In due time, I'm waiting now, but in due time, their foot will slip, because the day of their calamity is near. And the imp impending things are hastening upon them. So the Lord will vindicate his people. The Lord will deliver his people and then vindicate them. This is what the uh, martyrs cried for in Revelation. They said, when, how long is it going to be until you vindicate us? And God says, I'm going to. I'll have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free. Drop down to verse 41. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice... 
I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. So if that's what God is going to do, how do we respond? Verse 43, rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. He's going to bring judgment to those who spurn him. He's going to bring deliverance and atonement for those who will receive it. That's why I believe, if you go back to Revelation chapter 15, I don't think we have to make the Song of Moses either chapter 15 of Exodus or chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. I think it's a combination of both because what they're going to say is about who God is and what he's done. Back in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is sovereign over everything. You're righteous and you're true, so your ways are right and they're true. You are king of the nations, which is exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32. So who will not fear you? Look at who you are. Look at what you've done. Who's not going to fear? And whoever's going to choose to not fear, worship, and obey God, they will incur the judgment that is coming. Who's not going to glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. You alone are holy. The song that is being sung ends with three reasons why everyone is going to see God's glory and ultimately at the end, fear his name. It's because he's holy, it's because he's king, and it's because he's just. The content of the song of Moses that is going to be intermixed and intermingled with the song of the Lamb is that there is praise for the works of God, there's praise for the ways of God, there's praise for the worth of God, and there's praise for the worship of God, all seen in this song. So as the overcomers are standing before God, as those who've been slain by the beast are standing, delivered from the beast through their own death, they remember God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. You remember that deliverance wasn't overnight to begin with, right? That deliverance was offered even to the Egyptians. You don't have to experience this wrath if you would simply obey. It takes 10 plagues and then the Red Sea. That was because of the choice that Pharaoh made. That was because of the choice of the Egyptians. We even know that some Egyptians went with the Israelites. Hey, we're leaving Egypt behind because we believe Yahweh is the one true God. We're following with you. They were delivered too. Those who were judged brought judgment upon themselves. And I believe that's what these overcomers are remembering. They're remembering deliverance from the beast. And they're remembering deliverance from Egypt. They're recalling judgment is coming and it's just, but you don't have to experience it. Number three, the song of the lamb, they are remembering deliverance from God's wrath. So we have number one, deliverance from the beast. We have deliverance from Egypt and we have deliverance from God's wrath. This is the end of verse 4 and on into the end of the chapter. We have the song of Moses, and it's called the song of Moses because it's a song that Moses composed. We have the song of the lamb. It's not called the song of the lamb because the lamb composed the song. The song isn't composed by the lamb. The song is about what the lamb has done and what we could not do for ourselves. That's what the song of the lamb is about. One commentator says it this way, one of the most striking features of this song of the overcomers is the absence of any mention of their own victory and their own achievement. From beginning to end, the whole song is a lyrical outburst celebrating the greatness of God. 
But we wouldn't have been able to deliver ourselves from the Antichrist. We would never have been able to be delivered from, Israel, uh, from Egypt if it hadn't been for you, God. And we surely would not be able to be delivered from your wrath if it wasn't for the Lamb. The end of verse 4, all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. All of the righteous acts of God have been, have been revealed, but namely the gospel. People are going to bow down and worship God and worship Jesus as king because Jesus has changed their heart through the power of the gospel. But, verse 5, after the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is sung, John sees in the temple of the tabernacle, which is really the tabernacle, but the back portion of it where the Holy of Holies was, he sees it opened. You know what was in the Holy of Holies. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And you know it was in the Ark of the Covenant. There were three main things, right? A little jar of manna, Aaron's budding staff, and the Ten Commandments. So we have the song of the Lamb, which says, you are a lawbreaker. You've disobeyed God. You have transgressed your creator. But the song of the lamb is one that the lamb does not want you to die, so the lamb dies in your place, substitutes himself for you. But if you choose to deny that deliverance, if you choose to say, I'm not going to follow the lamb, then you'll be judged by the Ten Commandments as the Ark of the Covenant is open and the Ten Commandments are brought out. That's why we're in the temple of the Tabernacle of Testimony in heaven. Because as God brings judgment, he's judging you based on his law. And you and I are all lawbreakers. If you will not choose the deliverance that God has made possible, then you choose to bear the judgment and the wrath of God yourself. The seven angels, verse 6, who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. So they're coming out of the presence of God. God has commissioned them to do this. And they're coming out of the temple. That means that they are not only commissioned by God, but sent in holiness from God. They are not going to be doing anything that is unholy or unjust. This is God's direct orders given to them, and they're doing it. To add to that, they're clothed in linen. They're clothed in linen. That is usually the word that's seen for angels and what they're wearing. It's also, in chapter 19, verse 8, the word that's used to describe what the bride of Christ is wearing at the marriage supper of the Lamb. She has been given linen to wear it so that she can be pure, and it's an aspect of purity. So I think what John has seen and what God is intending for us to see is not just what they're wearing, but why they're wearing it. The linens are representations of the holiness of God. They are not going to do anything in impurity. They're not going to do anything that's unjust. They're clothed in purity, just like you and I will be clothed in purity in chapter 19, verse 8. What they're doing in bringing the judgment of God, it's sent by God, commissioned by God, who is holy himself, and it's pure. It's absolutely pure. They're also girded around their chest with golden sashes. Some people would say that this, this is what the priests used to wear, so this is a representation of their priesthood or their servant, servanthood. I don't think that we could say it's their priesthood because angels are never called priests of God. We are. Um, I think it's their servanthood on display. They're absolutely servants of God, for sure. I think probably more than that, it's just an aspect of being in the presence of God, wearing the majesty of God, golden sashes that are just a representation of God's majesty and glory and his, his purity, his greatness. But these seven angels are commissioned by God, sent out of the temple. And one of the four living creatures, verse 7, gives to the seven angels. So one of the four living creatures gives these seven bowls. 
full of the wrath of God. They're golden bowls. So again, they are great, they're majestic, they're full of glory, and they're full of the wrath of God. Full, that word means filled to overflowing. And these kinds of bowls are not bowls that you and I would have cereal in, where we can pour the cereal and we can put milk in and, and you can just eat. These bowls are more like flat saucers where as you're walking with the, the wrath of God in this bowl, even as you're walking, it's filled to the brim and it's starting to slip over. It's starting to pour over the edges. And so what these bowls are signifying is that when the judgment is released, it's just poured instantly. It's just, you just tip it over and it's all gone. It's filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Therefore, his wrath is forever and ever as well. And the temple was filled with smoke. Smoke is an aspect of the presence of God. It's a symbol of his presence. So therefore, again, judgment is coming from God himself. He's the one doing this judgment. And from the glory of God and from his power. No one's even able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels are finished. This is the prelude to what's going to happen next week as we look at chapter 16 with these bowls being poured out onto the earth. This rapid fire judgment. So we see the deliverance of the overcomers, those who are victorious that made it through the great tribulation and made it into heaven. Why? Because they were preserved by their God. They were killed by the Antichrist. They're martyrs for their faith. But they made it safely home. They were delivered. And that deliverance reminds them of other deliverances in the Bible. Namely, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. That was God's doing. They were delivered through judgment. So judgment is a gracious gift. It's a good thing because it delivers God's people from evil. And then obviously the deliverance that the Lamb provides from the wrath of God entirely. You don't have to experience this wrath if you would be covered by the work of the Lamb. So how do we wrap this up? Just four points in conclusion. Number one, we are meant to see the beauty of the law. We are meant to see the beauty of the law. This is the beauty of the song of Moses. There's the embodiment of the law there. When we go to the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary of God, we're going to the Holy of Holies. We're opening up that Ark of the Covenant. We're seeing the Ten Commandments. Those who receive the wrath of God are lawbreakers. They've rejected God's law. They've done what Psalm chapter 2 describes uh, the nations doing, being in an uproar, wanting to throw off God's fetters. We hate his laws. We hate his rules. Therefore, wrath is in store for them. And I, I plead with you this morning, if that's you, if you are unaware of the reality of you breaking God's law, I know you're not unaware of that because the Bible says you know that. Romans chapter 2 says you have a conscience that's worked with your spirit to know I've done things that are wrong. You've all felt guilt. You've all felt shame. We know that we're sinful people. But if you choose to try and overcome your sinfulness by doing good works, by being a better person, by being moral, maybe even showing up here, maybe coming to church today was your attempt at trying to be good before God. The Bible says, you not only have wrath in store, but you have wrath hanging over your head now. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the law convicts the whole world concerning sin, and it does so by shutting every mouth. Everyone's silenced. Nobody can say I'm perfect. Nobody can say that. And there's a penalty for breaking the law. Namely, the wrath that's in store for us. So have you been convicted by the law of God? 
do you know that you are a sinner through and through, that you, even though you are all incredibly nice people, and I love you all, and I enjoy hanging out with you all, but we are all wicked, evil, despicable people inside. Our, sin, our hearts are filled with sin, stained with sin on the inside. We're not born uh, with a, a, a soul that has a morally neutral compass. We're born defective. We're born with a broken soul. And therefore, we don't want God. We don't choose God. We don't like God. We love our sin. Have you been convicted by the law of God? I heard one pastor say, if you haven't felt convicted recently, you need to go back to law school. You've got to go sit under the law and let the law school your soul. I just did this with my 10th grade class this last week. We were talking about the judgment of God. We were going through the gospel of Mark together in my class, and, and I was asking, are we basically good people or bad people? And no one in the entire three classes that I have, over you know, 80 students, nobody said that we're basically bad. And so I, I just, I knew this was a t-ball. This was set up. I've, I've been discipled by our brother Glenn in the way of the master. I don't know if you guys have understood the way of the master, but this was a t-ball for us, right? Okay, let's check our goodness. Let's just check. Let's use the Ten Commandments. This is the, the, the concise, simplistic way of describing the law. Let's check ourselves based on the Ten Commandments. Have we ever lied? Don't bear false witness, the commandments say. Have we ever lied? Everybody put their hand up. And of course, you're trained to say that if you don't put your hand up, you can say, well, you're a liar because you didn't put your hand up. You lied, so you're a liar. Put your hand up. Everyone's a liar. I asked my students if they've used God's name in vain. And one student answered my question by using God's name in vain. So I said, thank you. You just did it. I said, if you take God's name upon yourself in a blasphemous way, God describes that as blasphemy, as taking his name and speaking it with emptiness, whether saying Jesus is a curse word or saying God's name in vain is a curse word. And by the way, that commandment is so much more than our speech, right? It's not saying it's thou shalt not say the Lord's name in vain. The, the word is literally to bear upon yourself. You shall not carry God's name in vain. Don't call yourself a Christian with vanity. Don't, don't belittle. Don't drag God's name into the mud. And most of the hands went up. Yes, we're blasphemers. You've ever stolen something? Yes. What does that, call, what, what does that mean you are? What do you call someone who steals? And they all said stealer. And you get to laugh because the Pittsburgh Steelers are an awful football team. You say, no, you're thieves. Just ask, have you ever committed adultery? Which my students can't because adultery technically is when you're married and you're sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse. So none of my students are married. They cannot technically commit adultery right now. They can commit sexual immorality. Let's talk about that. We talked about when Jesus said, if you look at a man or woman with lust in your heart, it is as if you've committed adultery already in your heart. So in your heart, are we adulterers? And we all raised our hands. Same thing goes for murder. No one murdered in my classes, but we've all been angry at people. We've all hated people. And Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, that's murdering them in your heart. So according to their own testimony, by their own admission, all of my students claim to be lying, thieving, blaspheming, murderers, and adulterers at heart. They all said, yep, that's us. And you just have to ask, on judgment day, if God if God judges you based off of the Ten Commandments, we covered five of them. There's five other ones that we've all broken. But if God judges you just based on those five, are we innocent or guilty? Not one person says innocent, right? That's going to law school. That's seeing we've all broken the law. And we all know that we've broken the law. 
and God is just to silence our sense of goodness by holding up the law and by saying, you have not kept this. And this is the beauty of the song of the Lamb. You haven't kept this. And I know you can't keep this. So let me keep it for you. That's what God says through Jesus Christ. You can't keep the law. You're never going to be able to keep the law. In fact, the law wasn't given so that you could keep it. The law was given so that you could see you can't keep it. You're not perfect. You're not holy. You're not sinless. And so God says, let me send someone who will keep it in its entirety, in its perfection. Never once disobeying. Never once a bad thought, an evil act. Did Jesus ever break the law? No. We are lawbreakers, but we trust in the one who has kept the law perfectly, born under the law, keeping the law, and then dying as a lawbreaker, dying under the curse of breaking the law. Jesus died a death that he never deserved. We deserve that death. And that's the song of the Lamb. And that's what Revelation 15 is there to remind us of. So number one, the beauty of the law. Understand the beauty of the law. Understand the glory that is inherent in law school. Understand that. But number two, understand the beauty of the song of the Lamb. Understand the beauty of the song of the Lamb, that salvation is made possible, deliverance is made possible. You are a lawbreaker, but you do not have to experience the punishment for breaking the law. That's why the Lamb is greater than Moses. Moses struck the rock. Jesus is the rock, 1 Corinthians 10. Moses led a long life with a private death. Jesus led a short life with a very public death. Moses crossed on dry ground to rescue his people. Jesus drowned in the sea of God's wrath to rescue his. Moses brings the law, and that's all he can bring. Jesus brings the gospel and completely fulfills the law. And that's the third thing that we're supposed to see this morning is the beauty of the law and the gospel in perfect union together. That's why in Revelation 15, it says that this is, these are two separate songs that have become one. This is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's very, very specific in Greek that these are two different songs. These aren't, this isn't one song. These are two songs. But only one song is given. So they're singing two separate songs, but only one is given. It's like the music from one song and the lyrics from another combined together, just like how Vanilla Ice made his music. <laughs> Never would have guessed Vanilla Ice would come into a sermon. But we see the beauty of the law and the gospel together. We see that we can show people the law, show them their sinfulness, and take them to the cross. Therefore, finally, number four, we must respond to the beauty of the law and the gospel. So we see the beauty of the song of Moses. We see the beauty of the song of the Lamb. We see the beauty of their union, and we must respond. We must worship God as king, as creator, as holy. We must worship him as good, never unfair, never unjust, always waiting in patience. And we must thank him for deliverance from future wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 describes this. Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 describe wrath being held back now. It exists in all of its fury, but it's being held back so that you and I have more time to choose deliverance over condemnation. Our God 
is a redeemer. He redeemed his people during the great tribulation as they are slaughtered by the Antichrist. He redeems and he calls them home. He says, you're safe. He redeemed all of Israel who would believe in him out of Egypt from the Egyptian slavery that they were involved in. And God, in his grace, redeems them, brings them out to their own land, loves them, calls them by name. And God has redeemed you and me. If you are here this morning and you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you love him, you're following him, you can only do that because he's a redeemer. And so what's our response to the law and to the gospel? It's glorying in our amazing deliverer and our amazing redeemer. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so rich with the beauty of your delivering power, your delivering nature. You are our redeemer. You have loved us. You have given yourself for us. And we, though we have gone astray, each to his own way, you offered up Christ as the deliverer for all who would trust in you. So, Father, bring about salvation in this room. Bring about worship for Christ. Bring about conviction as lawbreakers, the lawbreakers that we are, and bring about consolation in Jesus that though we are lawbreakers, deserving of wrath, we do not have to experience it because of Jesus. May we trust him. May we worship him. May we share the gospel with each other, believer or unbeliever alike. May we just be speaking to everyone around us of the beauty of Christ. And may we glory in our Redeemer, even now as we sing.